The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Who's currently trapped in a cyberpunk hell of his own devising. All right, then. And tonight, we have a special guest. Uh, we have Jimmy Shi, the CEO of Moonquill, which is a small press publisher, has decided to drop by and tell us about himself, his business, and what exactly Moonquill is. So welcome to the show, Jimmy. Thank you for having no, it's, me. It's great that you were able to come by and make time in your busy schedule, because I know being the you know CEO of a small press is a very, very busy job. And I know this literally because I've been doing some contract work for you. Full disclosure, everyone. Uh, Jimmy actually is, uh, and I've been working together for a few months on a few things. So I know how incredibly busy he is mm -hmm. and why we're very lucky to have him here today. So, Jimmy, before we start talking about Moonquill, let's talk about you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Awesome. So I'm still fairly young, 26 years old. Um, I graduated from George Washington University in 2016. Mm -hmm. I was working in government contracting. Can't talk much about it. Wink, wink. Um, but during my time in college, I was majoring in business. I didn't know what I really wanted to do. I didn't really want to continue down the road of business, even though, you know, I was majoring in it and it was kind of too late for me to change my degree. Mm -hmm. I turned to writing and I found a moderate amount of success, let's call it. Um, and I thought maybe potentially I would be able to turn this into a career. Well, Unfortunately, can we ask what kind of thing were you writing? <laughs> so I was actually writing um, Chinese wuxia novels, which oh, okay. was kind of good for my background because growing up, I'd learned a lot of Chinese mythology from my parents. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't read the usual American fairy tales. I was read, you know, Chinese fairy tales, stuff like Sun Wukong, right? Right, um, right. Journey to so the West, I, Monkey King, yep. Exactly, Journey to the West, stuff like that. Uh, so I had a pretty good background in Chinese mythology. Mm -hmm. So I thought, why not? You know, I'll try it out. Makes sense. And had you been reading Wuxia stories for a while? Like, is is did you you grow up reading? I guess would be Jin Yong, right? And um, that'd be Louis Cha in English, or. Uh, Oh, a Gulong, for example, like the traditional stuff, or were you reading more modern stuff? I'll I'll have to be honest. I was I was reading more uh, modern stuff. Mm -hmm. I actually had zero interest in reading any Chinese literature until one day when I was at an internship, junior year of college. Mm -hmm. I found um, Chinese wuxia novels, and I just started reading because I was really really bored, and <laughs> that has snowballed into, I guess, eventually Moonquill. Wow. Funny how the world works. Well, boredom has led to many great human innovations. There's no question on that. That's true. Many people have done things just because they were bored. But okay, okay, makes sense. And so after reading it for a while, now were you reading it on, um, sorry to get inside baseball here for the audience, but were you reading these like on sbc.net? Or do you know what I'm talking about? 
I do not. Oh, uh, okay. This was uh, that was a popular site. Oh wait, you would have been reading them in Chinese, right? Uh, Chinese, but also translated English because I can read Chinese, but it's rather difficult for me. Right. Okay. I'm just saying there was a、uh, site that used to exist called SBC.net. It was a big forum, and it was one of the main places that people back in the like early 2000s, like I'm literally talking 2000. Three, four, five—that area, were、uh, putting translated、uh, wuxia novels up. Like that was actually one of the first places. In fact, most of the stuff you can find translated online was done for SPC.TV, and it was kind of this giant Asian culture-focused site forum, basically. And so we had a lot of because、uh, I was involved a little bit with it. We had a lot of people from different Asian backgrounds, not just Chinese, but also Korean, etc. And、mm. uh, they would, you know, they would translate stuff. I think a guy we've had on the show before, Deathblade, actually also came out、yep. of that too. Came out of、uh, SBC. Oh, really? Well, yeah. If I remember, I think he was involved with it back then, because that's where you got the first stuff of、uh, Stellar Transformations.、Are、you familiar with that? Yeah. Yeah, that was actually considered one of the very first、uh, Shansha novels, and that was translated on SBCNet as well. The the English versions of it before before、uh, Wuxia World came around, and some of the others that would come later on. But they're almost all、um, yeah, Wuxia World is another example of that, where that would have come out of、uh, SBCNet as well.、Um, Sorry, I this I I'm a bit of a I I was there for a lot of this, so I'm a little bit of a Wuxia English Wuxia history geek that way. <laughs> Yeah, no worries. I actually didn't know that.、Um, I thought I got in early, but apparently not early, not as early as you, because I got in when basically、mm-hmm. Wuxia World was a brand new site, and I was、right. like, "Yeah, I'm an OG," and you're here going like, "No, no, not quite." <laughs> no, unfortunately, yeah,、well, uh, yeah, no. Th- there was a step before Wuxia World, and in fact, there were a couple.、Um, do you ever hear Wuxiapedia? Nope. No, that was another one that existed before Wuxia World. That was another attempt to kind of put all the stories on one website, but it just didn't get popular enough, and so it didn't take off. I'm not really sure what caused Wuxia World to actually be able to take off. We'd have to have、um, Run Wuxing on the show sometime and actually find out from him from him why his worked and like SBCNet didn't. But I'm getting into way too inside baseball. Sorry for most of our audience. They're probably what the hell is this. Um, I think SPCNet.TV does actually still exist, and it's exactly what I'm what I'm talking about right now. Anyway, so so you were involved with、uh, the early Wuxia stuff. Well, keep in mind this was going on in like 2004, and you're only 26, so you would have、yeah. been a little young for most for for when the early stuff was there. Because I got into it because of、uh, Lu Xiaofeng, the Adventures of Lu Xiaofeng was translated on. SPCNet, and I happened to find copies of it somewhere, and I backtracked it to where it came from, and that's how I ended up there. But anyway, this is、oh. not about me, however. So, so you got in, and so you tried writing some of your own wuxia fiction, and、exactly. how did it go? Yeah, it went pretty well. I actually、okay. started on the、uh, wuxia world forums, and then、mm-hmm. eventually made made my own site.、Um, I got recruited、awesome. by a now defunct site called Novels Now. But back in its day, novels now was on par with Gravity Tales for a、mm-hmm. bit in terms of popularity, and then the、uh, basically the owner stopped paying people, so it died out. <laughs> yeah,、um, I can see that. Shame on him because Gravity Tales, you know, sold for. Well, I guess nobody knows, but presumably well over a million dollars. Yes,、um, yeah, I think it did. Yeah. So you know, if he just kept paying, maybe you know, novels now was on a pretty good trajectory for a while. Unfortunately, you know、mm-hmm. that happened. I ended up 
compiling my book, which was called The Song of Swords, and I moved it to Amazon, where mm-hmm. it actually didn't experience any success for a while. And then right. for some reason, um, I believe in 2015, towards the end of 2015 mm-hmm. or 16, I got a lot of people reading it in India. And that actually gave huh. me enough money where I was like, you know what? I could potentially make a living off of writing. Wow. So okay. uh, I tried. <laughs> and so, you, so you tried and you, you gave it a go, but it wasn't quite as lucrative as you were hoping anyway. Yes. Okay. That, you know, and, and that happens. But okay. So I've seen references to Song of Swords. I've never, I've never read it myself, um, but I will definitely keep an eye out for it. Okay. It's now, not that well written, I'll be honest. <laughs> well, it was my first book. So. Yeah, it's your first book. I mean, that's yeah. the way it all. And your writing is a journey. You you are never really a master. I mean, maybe okay, exactly. maybe you're Stephen King well, or someone like that. Yeah. But um, but you know, it you just are always improving. And I would bet Stephen King would even tell you that he even he today is still improving on certain things in his writing. He, um, I've heard Stephen King actually gives a lot of credit to his editor. In fact. He's actually got apparently an editor he's been working with for like longer than um, many people have been alive because you know he's been writing since like the 80s, right? And so because of that, his editor apparently is the guy who's kind of helped shape his work and keep him on track. And uh, he gives a lot of his credit there. So not just good writers, but sometimes you need good editors too. I absolutely agree with that. Uh, when I started writing Song of Swords, mm-hmm. I knew that I needed an editor badly. Because right. I'll be honest, my original writing was barely readable when I first right. started. Mm-hmm. I was never that good at English. <laughs> um, right. Okay. So I found an editor, and she basically transformed the piece to a level where it was readable and people could enjoy it, and there mm-hmm. weren't a ton of grammatical errors. There, you know, the story actually made some semblance of sense. So right. I absolutely agree that an editor is. An editor uh, is an author's best friend. Yep. You have to have one. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, you need someone to edit your work, definitely. Um, And uh, I suspect you appreciate editors even more now as a publisher, in fact. Um, Because after all, I guess you have to pay them, right? As part of Moonquill, you must have a few editors that you work with with your your authors. And uh, a few long-suffering editors are doing their best, right? Um, Yeah, so... mm -hmm. If I could speak to this, I really think that a good editor is worth their weight in gold. Um, Mm -hmm. We have a pretty difficult test for our editors to become, you know, official Moonquill editors. Right. And I, geez, man, it's really hard to find good editors and keep them because honestly, editing is a very thankless task, Mm -hmm. even if the author, you know, and the other people working with you, thank you, because all you're doing all you're ever doing is going in, dissecting a work, and finding all of its flaws. Yeah. So your brain is just filled with all of these problems in this piece that you're editing. So mm-hmm. I think editors in general just see the worst of the pieces they work on. And for some editors, they just think that the work is still that bad even after all of the changes are made. Right. That's one of the problems we're having with um, at Moonkull, keeping editors, you know, motivated mm-hmm. and in with us for the long haul. Yeah. 
let's get into Moonquill then. So how did the found how did you go from being your own author to being a publisher? How did that happen? <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So this is quite a story, actually. <laughs> That's so what we're here for. After my you know, me mediocre success, let's call it, with mm -hmm. Song of Swords publishing. Web novel in 2017, I believe, 2018, maybe? 2018, One of those I think years. it was, yeah, yeah. Okay, 2018 started um, accepting original works to their website. I was one of the original authors they contacted. They were like, we're going to sign you. We're going to give you a $20,000 signing bonus. It's going to be great. And then they didn't. Mm -hmm. So I was like, what am I going to do? Right? And then I was in their Discord chat. Thank God for Discord. Mm -hmm. um, and I was talking to Ink Bamboo, who is currently now also a staff member of Moonquill. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, if WebNow is not going to pay any of us, we should go to Amazon. I've made some money there. I know some tips and tricks. You know, I think you should put your book on Amazon. Right. So he did. I think he made like... Well, I guess I can't go into exactly how much money he made without his permission. Right, yeah. But let's just say mm -hmm. in his first month, he made somewhere in the low thousands, right? Mm -hmm. Which is pretty good. Pretty good. Your first yeah. book, yeah. your first month, pretty good. And then this other author saw that Ink did this, and he came and talked to me. And I was like, yeah, Amazon's great, man. Just look at Ink. And he mm -hmm. was like, all right, I'm going to go publish my book on Amazon, and I'm going to you know, try out a few new tips and tricks. He did pretty well, too. Mm -hmm. Everyone did better than me. <laughs> but, uh -huh. you know, that's good. Because basically everyone started seeing the success that people were having on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And we started pulling our you know knowledge together. We were like, okay, so when you first launch your book on Amazon, you want to do this to give your book the best chance possible. Mm -hmm. You want to get it edited. The book cover matters a lot, okay? Yep. People say don't judge a book by its cover. They do. Absolutely. That's just how it works. Mm -hmm. If your title sucks, nobody's going to buy it, okay? Make a better title. So we just, you know, we created this pool of information, and then we were like, you know, we're, we're getting pretty good at this. What if we just, you know, like started publishing books for other people who either don't have the time or don't have the um, or don't want to invest all the time learning about how to succeed on Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. Like we'll take a small fee, you know, maybe we'll offer some editing. You know, we we're like 20 authors. We know people who can edit works well because we've worked with them. Mm -hmm. So we started thinking about this and then so one day I believe about September Mm -hmm. We basically agreed that we were going to do this, and we had found a person, another author, to who was basically – we found another author who was a coder mm -hmm. who said he can make a website for us. So we were like, you know what? We're just going to get started. We're going to make a company. What should the, what should the name be? The main two people uh, who were the driving forces behind the creation of Moonquill mm -hmm. were me and Ink Bamboo. Mm -hmm. So the official company name is Inkquill LLC after ah, okay. him. And then the business name is Moonquill after me. Mm -hmm. It was actually an unrelated author <laughs> who has disappeared off the face of the planet since, you know, how mm -hmm. I, you know, online things work. Yep. Yep. Uh, it was actually an unaffiliated author who came up with the names for us. Okay. When we started, we were like, okay, we're just going to take the old, you know, web novel approach. We're going to have a 
content management system in the back of the website. People can upload their work. You know, we want to have a bit of a quality control gate. We understand that a lot of people who write web novels are not um, did not learn English as their native language. Right. We understand that mm -hmm. a lot of people who are new to writing are writing web novels, but mm -hmm. we still want to have some kind of quality control where we, we will basically accept anyone who is who seems to be putting in effort. But anyone who's just, you know, clearly is not putting in the right amount of effort into their writing won't be on the site. Mm -hmm. So that way, you know, readers won't have to sift through piles and piles of junk, which is basically what you have now a web novel. Right. Where you yeah. have basically a million novels and probably about 90% of them are impossible to read <laughs> that's optimistic but yes yes <laughs> you know i i didn't want to badmouth my competitors too much you know right I, oh, I which web novel you can go ahead be fair. <laughs> <laughs> um so we made that the website wasn't doing too well which is fair we didn't have a strong financial base like web novel mm -hmm. where people knew that they were backed by you know 10 cent so they felt that web novel was a better choice Mm -hmm. We did pretty well for a while, but we, the website's traffic was slowly declining. So at that point, my choices were this. Either we continue this and we just basically hope that it turns for the better, or we try publishing. Mm -hmm. And we were all, always thinking about publishing, but we never taken a step because it would be more intensive of work and require us to basically overhaul how we were managing the company. Mm -hmm. So we decided that we were going to start with publishing our own works, get a few books into the publishing chain, try and work out all of the kinks. And then in the meantime, try and recruit a few new authors, new blood who could be our initial group of outside authors to prove that we could publish and we could do it well. Right. So we started with a republishing of my book, The Song of Swords, and then we published another book called The Wheel of Samsara by a fellow co-founder, I guess, of Moonquill named mm -hmm. Liron. Both of the books did pretty well. We finally broke even for the two months we launched those books. We were like, mm -hmm. okay, we might be able to get somewhere with this. Um, the real big break came in June, I guess May of last year, when Mike Wee and Darks, well, I guess Mikhail Werbrick and Haiti Bendakji, the authors mm -hmm. of Lord of Goblins, came and talked to us. And they were like, we know artists, we know marketing, we'll handle that. Our publishing program was made to be extremely flexible, so we offer editing, mm -hmm. publishing, marketing and artwork mm -hmm. but as a fledgling pu publisher we were only really good at publishing and editing mm -hmm. our artwork and marketing departments were not very strong so it was incredible for us when they came to us and were like we will handle the art and the marketing you guys do the publishing and the editing mm -hmm. and thank god they came to us because <laughs> it has been a wonderful partnership um, That's fantastic. Lord of Goblins mm -hmm. and Mikhail Werbrick and Haiti Benjakji really saved the company. I 
really think Moonquill might have gone bankrupt towards the end of 2020 if they had not come to us. Because while we were experiencing success with our own books, we were just unable to prove to other people that we could publish other people's books well. Mm -hmm. And Lord of Goblins, which is the book that they published with us in June, we edited heavily and we put a lot of effort into publishing and managing the publishing process well. And we were rewarded for it. It hit number one in, I believe, three categories in the first month on Amazon. And it's hovered around the top 10 in several categories on Amazon since. And mm. it's about, I guess, seven months from when we published it. I absolutely have to credit Mikhail Warbrick and Haiti Bendakji for saving Moonquill. And we they've also been able to, with their success, draw new authors to us. For example, mm -hmm. Jay Powell, our second, I guess, outside author, has also published two books with us. Both of the books have done rather well. We're not breaking any records, per se, with them, but mm -hmm. they're solid. They show that we know what we're doing, and we're learning a lot from all of these processes. Since we started publishing towards the end of 2019, our team has grown dramatically, you know, including you as a contractor mm -hmm. for us. We have an incredible editing team now, whereas at the beginning we had basically ourselves and our personal editors. We found actual editors. Well, okay, mm -hmm. I, I can't say actual. We found other editors who could take the time to edit these books and do it well. We've learned even more about the Amazon publishing process and how to, you know, a lot of tips and tricks of how to really boost your book's chances of succeeding. I honestly think among small press and indie publishers, we might have the most insider knowledge of the Amazon publishing process. And you can quote me hmm. on that. I will defend myself. I will <laughs> defend Moonquill on that. We okay. know so much about the process. It's incredible. Um, wow. Artwork, we still have work to do there. Marketing, we've improved there by leaps and bounds. We're obviously still a rather unknown small publisher, mm -hmm. but we've learned a lot of ways. <laughs> Mikhail Werbrick calls it the moon quill way of okay. getting solid marketing and advertising out there, even with our limited, I guess, mindshare in the community. Right. Wow, that's that's really impressive. Oh wow. So sorry, Don, go. Oh, I was gonna say it's kinda interesting when you explain how you all came together because um two two points uh, I'm gonna make for folks listening at home that will tie in is when it comes to like the nerdly arts, I'm more a comic book guy kind of guy. And I'm like crazy old. Rob is too, but mm. I'm cool with it. <laughs> and, <laughs> Thank you. And it's interesting because that process that you describe of how you guys came together and started your company back when you get to like the seventies going into the eighties, a lot of what became the underground and independent comic publishers would do that. That it would be a bunch of people who were interested in the medium, who were creative types and would get together and then kind of swap information. But it sounds like you guys had a lot more savvy about the business side than those guys did. And I'm wondering, looking at kind of how that pattern sort of repeats do you find that a lot of the other say web publishers 
do come together like you guys did? Or do you find that some of them are kind of more mercenary or are kind of more constructed when they get put together? That that there's more of kind of like putting together a boy band, that they select certain kinds of people and then kind of squish them together and hope for the best. Right. So most web novel platforms, I would say, are made, are constructed, right? Mm-hmm. The big ones are Royal Road, Web Novel, Wattpad, Radish, um, and Scribblehub. Mm-hmm. Scribblehub is connected with novel updates, which means it had a huge potential user base that they could tie to the platform. In that way, it was... Tony basically owns the thing, as far as I know. So that was very much constructed by him and his, I guess, um, the community of people who were using the novel updates platform. Mm -hmm. Wattpad... Web novel radish were all created by people with incredible amounts of money, and in radish's um, case, people with incredible education. If you hmm. go look at Radish Fiction's CEO, his background, their entire staff's background, they have they're like top zero point one percent education people. It's hmm. incredible, hmm. but. You look at web. Uh, you look at Royal Road, and that I think is a little more similar to how we came about. If you know Royal Road, it came out as basically a glorified forum. It still kind of is, um, but it started out as basically a glorified forum where you could post chapters of your novels. I think we at Mooncool were a little more like Royal Road, where we kind of took incremental steps because we didn't initially have, you know, a huge community to pull from or a lot of money to pull from. Hmm. Now, d- does that kind of make a diff if you're uh, the, the bigger company or do the the smaller, more organic companies have a closer tie to the audience? Like, do you find one has a big advantage over the other or not? Well, it depends what your goals are with your company, right? My Our goal with Moonquill isn't really to make a ton of money. It's to make it easier for authors to publish and make money. Hmm. Clearly, if our authors do well, we do too. But, you know, we're not out there for massive profit margins. If your goal is to have a lot of author, access to a lot of authors and basically be able to force your way into a point where you can make a lot of profit as is, you know, with most companies, absolutely having a, <laughs> having a large amount of money at your hand is definitely better. I think our advantages at Mooncool are that because we're authors first, we understand what authors need. We understand where they are, where they have been and where they want to go. Right. Mm-hmm. right because yeah. We live that life ourselves. I think that's something that draws some authors to us. It's that these people understand what's going on. Whereas if you go with a traditional publisher, you might just be a number on their board of, we're just going to have another book to publish this month. But for us at Moonquill, I'll be honest, um, the Lord of Goblins Volume 2 book we took and actually is being published today we 
worked endless hours on it. <laughs> we, I must have pulled about 1,220 hour weeks in a row working on that. Wow. We, you're going to more likely have success with a big five publisher. You're also more likely to have success if you're going with, if you're a super popular author on say Wattpad or Royal Road. Mm -hmm. But if what you want is sustained success, because succeeding on those platforms is very easy for you to burn out because you have to post chapters every day. You have to make continuous content every single day. And if you take a break, you run the risk of losing your audience, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Our publishing model is a much more long-term sustainable model. And I believe that it will bring author success more success in a longer run. Right. Now you're specifically talking about the people that are signed contract and you're publishing their works. You're not talking yes. about the people that are just publishing on your site because of course yes. you also have that side to the Moonquill site as well, don't you? Yeah. So our vision for Moonquill is to be a vertical publisher. So people who are starting to learn to write, write on the site, if they want to take the next step and try and earn money with their writing, they enter the publishing program. We start with eBooks and then we move into paperbacks and in audiobooks and then potentially comics and webtoons. Hmm. One day, maybe we'll be, we'll be able to finance a few, um, cartoons or, you know, a movie or something. Hmm. Dream big. Dream I don't big. know if we'll get there, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I didn't think a year ago that we'd ever be able to pay for our own webtoon or, pay narrators, top shelf narrators to make audiobooks for us, but that's where we are today. Hmm. So, you know, it could happen. Definitely. You never know what can Fingers happen crossed. and you've just got to try. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. Um, so if you had to go back and do this again, what would you have done differently? I would have started the publishing program a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. We basically treaded water with the website for about a year before we were like, we need to do something. Right. So we could have had a lot more money at our disposal to work on the publishing program if we had just started it earlier. That also might have allowed us to get our foot in the door there and recruit authors earlier um, with more ease. Because one of our struggles right now is finding authors who both meet our standards and want to publish with us. <laughs> because right. basically the, uh, the authors who meet our standards right now mostly want to publish with more established publishers. Right. Some of whom have only been out, uh, have been existing for a year or two longer than us. Because 2018 was a huge year for indie publishers sprouting from all across the globe. Mm -hmm. So if we had started publishing in 2018 or even when we first had the idea to, instead of pu starting publishing towards the end of 2019, we would probably in a, be in a much stronger position right now. Hmm. So dream big and start early. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you needed that impetus you needed that uh, time to realize that so you you enter the market when you enter the market unfortunately you've just got to yep. make sure that uh, you do your best once you're in there 
Um, so I noticed something that Moonquill generally focuses more on, um, I, this is just a guess, a male audience. Is that correct? Like we didn't mo- want to. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. just how it happened. <laughs> That's not a criticism. That's not a criticism at all. I mean, I mean, Wattpad, for example, is, uh, last time I checked, roughly 80% female. Like yep. Wattpad is the giant, you know, girls reading engine, basically. If you're a female publisher, that's the where to go. And that's so I would argue that uh, Scribble Hub, Moon Quill, um, Web Novel, basically you guys are the are basically picking up the male side of the reading audience, what there is of it anyway, which, of yep. course, is much smaller because women tend to read in high school. Women just read more overall. Right. And they tend to yes. read more than boys do. And so it's it's based on that so what genres does moonquill focus on then are you just mostly focusing on um wuxia type stuff or do you even do wuxia type stuff so before i answer that i just want to go and address the male to female audience numbers mm-hmm. oh sure most of our audience is male mm-hmm. on the website which is basically the only place where we do have demographic numbers I right. believe about 70% of our audience is male. Right. You would potentially think it would be higher, but it's 70%. Mm-hmm. We, when we first made the company, we actually debated about this if we wanted to go heavily skewed towards catering towards the male audience or female audience. We ended up deciding that we wanted to try and do both. One of our first planned published novels was actually going to be a romance novel written by an author who had a strong female base of uh, fans. Hmm, Unfortunately, that didn't end up working out. She ended up signing with another company. It's it's a whole mess. Mm -hmm. But we actually were planning for one of our first novels to be a romance novel catered towards the female audience. Right. Towards what genres we're currently focusing on, I would say fantasy and action in general. We have mm-hmm. our top selling novels are light novels and lit RPG novels, right. uh, which are both fantasy based. Well, generally, I mean, light novels, lit yeah. RPG are pretty <laughs> much always fantasy, but light novels are not always fantasy. There are lots of romance light novels out there too. Yep. Hmm. But yeah, we seem to be attracting a lot of fantasy authors and I'm okay with that. Um, if mm-hmm. we can carve out a solid niche where we have people who write a certain genre trust us with their work, I'm okay with that. Hmm. Well, no, I, I can totally see that. That would be great. So here's an odd question. What do you define as a light novel then? As a publisher, when you look at something, what makes you think, oh, this is a light novel? <laughs> so I guess for me, it's to do with the planned length and the format, mm-hmm. as well as the writing style. Right. Because light novels originally mean something basically from Japan, right? Like yes. Japanese light novels. Mm-hmm. But we're obviously not publishing Japanese novels. They're original English light novels. For me, it's I kind of define light novels as the format of having several volumes planned out mm-hmm. and then the general style right if it's kind of in that japanese aesthetic anime kind of art style on the book Mm -hmm. cover and then you have the more i guess i don't want to say casual but more lighthearted 
uh, style of writing, the more flowy mm -hmm. style of writing. Whereas with normal English no fantasy novels, it's a little more, the, I would say the prose is a little tighter. Yes. And it's a little more in depth and complicated. Whereas mm -hmm. light novels are made to be purely almost for enjoyment. Yeah. And yeah. to that end, I think it's really in the style and format. Right. Okay. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. Um, I guess you could also say, this is just my own note, that I find a lot of Western fantasy, they're really crazy about all the world building and they just can't wait to tell you about their awesome fantasy world. You can you can feel that, that like, oh my God, I've got this super cool world I want to show you. Whereas a lot of light novel fantasy, it's more character based. It's like, we've got these cool and interesting characters. Let's spend time with them. And yeah, they have a world too, but the world... And a light novel tends to be more of a backdrop almost. It's like it's almost like a theater backdrop that they punk. It's there. Okay, it's fantasy land. Okay, we're going to go with it. Whereas a Western, you know, it's like Game of Thrones or something where we know what the 12 houses of Udiak are and what each of their sigils are and each of them yeah. has flags and clans and like <laughs> subclans and all this other stuff. And I'm not quite sure why that is, but for some reason, Western fantasy, probably Tolkien, is just obsessed yeah. with, with setting, really. And that's something where light novels tend to be less less about setting. There are ones that definitely have settings that are a bit setting-focused. Um, I can think of some like Ascendance of the Bookworm, for example, or oh, there's, a, there's a couple of them. Uh, but, but overall, they tend to be more about the characters, more character and event-based, really. Um, that's I will... just... mm -hmm. Sorry, I just wanted to say, I also feel that light novels get into the main meet faster mm -hmm. they get yeah. into the action or the main problem or something a lot quicker it's a lot faster yes. paced i would also say one thing i've noticed it seems that light novels light novels especially fantasy more more often than regular novels tend to borrow more from the eastern tradition like the wuxia or the the classic chinese stuff Whereas the Western, the full novels tend to borrow more from the Western because I think, like Rob said, they all want to be Tolkien. Do you think that, <laughs> that, that that more Eastern influence in the light novels comes from the fact that, like, Japan and Korea and China is kind of where they took off? Or yeah. You, okay, makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Because writers in general, re, they write what they have read. Mm -hmm. hmm. Not directly, of course. That's plagiarism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, they read they do that too. and then they <laughs> let's not blame anyone here right but, yes. um basically they read there's like and then they they're fascinated by it and then they go i want to write something like this mm -hmm. so of course people who read light novels will want to write representative books of that category and people who read western novels will want to write books that are more similar to the style of authors that they choose to read. So there's definitely that divide there based on, you know, what they interact with. Okay. And then what, what's the deal with all the isekai stories? Oh boy. <laughs> 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 so, um, I don't know if it's really okay for me as a publisher CEO to say this, but I feel that, you know, the isekai genre is basically just an easy way for a lot of the readers to relate 
to the main character oh, in okay. a quick, borderline cheap, easy fashion. Because a lot of the main characters who get, you know, run over by a truck or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, truck gun. <laughs> truck gun. Yep. A lot of them are stressed out. They're lonely. Mm, they have a hard job sometimes. They're having trouble finding a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Their parents are nagging them about how they haven't gotten married yet. Their friends are like, do you should stop drinking all day? What are you doing? Or they might not even have friends. So I feel that for a lot of people, light novels especially are an escape. That's why they're made to be so easily enjoyed and read. Mm -hmm. And they're not a chore to read through by any means. They're very brain easy, as I'd like to call it. <laughs> it's just an easy way for the reader to put themselves in the main character's shoes. Yeah, okay. Makes yeah, sense. I agree. Well, it's an automatic fish out of water hook, right? We we, mm. we plunk the character into a brand new fantasy world, and we get to watch them explore that world and learn new things and have adventures. That's just automatic win in a lot of ways, right? You yes. Just, you never know what you're going to encounter when as as they go through, and if the author's skilled, it'll be interesting things. It'll go interesting directions, and we're already seeing because there's so many, so so many isekai <laughs> stories. Um, everybody in their sister's brother's cousin has written one um that i think we're starting to see more and more uh people trying different things and trying new things with uh isekai um one of my favorite isekai stories i uh, just just a complete tangent i believe it's actually an original comic i don't think there's a light novel version of it. it's a manga actually called the ride on king oh <laughs> don knows what i'm talking about have you ever heard ever, ever heard of it jimmy I have not. Okay, imagine this, okay? Vladimir Putin gets isekai yeah. okay. The president of Russia. Except, of course, he's not officially Putin. He's, like, super muscular and that. He basically ends up in this fantasy world, and it's basically the story of how he takes over the fantasy world. <laughs> um, and I have to ask, did he die wrestling a bear? Uh, <laughs> no, he's assassinated, if I remember right. Um, but the reason he's called the Ride On King is this this version of Putin is obsessed with riding magical animals or riding riding <laughs> animals in general. And of course, once he Shirtless. gets to the fantasy world, his goal is to ride every magical animal he can. Shirtless. Shirtless. Yes, shirtless. <laughs> he never wears a shirt. I mean, I got to give it to them. I kind of want to read that now. <laughs> yeah, that was that was my hook. The, the, the damnedest thing is it's actually well-drawn, very well-drawn, actually. The art's beautiful, and it's actually well-written, too. So that's that's one of my favorite isekai stories, just because it's so bizarre. But And you read it for just because, oh, Putin and everything, and then eventually you get into it. It's like, this is actually really well done. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's actually a lot of fun. But yeah, we're and we're seeing, of course, uh, more... People taking isekai from different angles and trying all kinds of weird things with isekai. And um, actually, I was just talking to my wife this morning, actually, about the isekai genre in a, in a way. And although it came up in a, from a different angle, we were talking about how um, they've been noticing for a while that, especially in the last decade or so, um, people of your generation, Gen Z, a lot of them seem to be trying very, very desperately hard to avoid um, adulthood, basically. Not, <laughs> not, not you specifically. No, that's fair, that's fair, that's fair. <laughs> um, but, you know, a lot of them, the joke is, of course, they're still waiting for their a letter from Hogwarts. And I was saying to my wife, I actually don't blame them. Because, I mean, look at adulthood the... Adulthood uh, sucks. 
Well, yeah, exactly. The the look at the world that they're that they're inheriting in a lot of ways. Like this is a very chaotic world. The future is very uncertain. It's a very, um, yeah. It's it, it's going to be hard. It, there's no question that the future is going to be hard for a lot of them to get good jobs. I mean, their the quality of life is going to be less than it was for the boomers and less than it is for our generation. We're both John, Don and I are both Gen Xers or even the millennials, really, um, and. So it makes going, I'm going somewhere related with this, I promise. It's not just, (laughs) I'm not just trying to depress everyone. But the point of this is, is that I think the isekai genre is partly a reaction to that. Where it's, as you said, pure escapist fantasy. And it's about people escaping from this dreary world that doesn't have a good future to someplace that's wonderful and where people love you and appreciate you. Even if you're just a stamp collector, you'll go to a magic world where stamp collecting is the most important thing ever and is the key to defeating the demon overlord and saving the day and getting the girl. You have to collect the 99 magic stamps. That's exactly (laughs) right. But there's all these fake stamps out there. So you have to have a really good eye for which ones are real and which ones are fake. And how to use them. And of course, whether they have like good ink and good ink and good glue on them. And you could write a whole isekai story. You literally could. It could just because the genre is so generic and flexible that way. Yeah. I mean, I was calling isekai. I was not providing the isekai genre with the best descriptors. Mm -hmm. But I want to just clarify that I'm not looking down on the genre. No. I believe that it is an efficient way Mm-hmm. of getting a story going really quickly exactly yeah. and i don't fault authors for using it i think mm-hmm. it's fine um as long as the overall story is good you know it's just how you open it i will say you're absolutely on point with that it's a specific form of escapism for younger readers because if you look at all of the main characters none of them are really living happy lives mm-hmm. um on earth <laughs> and yep. Yep, there's a reason for that. Yep. Yeah. And then Truck Coon comes along and <laughs> you're and then you're done. And um there are actually there are stories actually about the Japanese have done stories about adventures about uh about the Isekai truck driver. And there's actually actually there's two of them. There's two manga I know of that are about Isekai truck drivers, basically. And their job is sending people to other worlds. That's here's that's... my question though. How do they escape murder charges, right? Because theoretically the bodies are still there. Right, there's just, or I guess it's always an not. accident. Remember, they, but the thing is, remember, in Isekai, they always jump in front of your truck to push some little girl out of the way or something like that. That's right? true. Hmm. That's true. So it's always an accident. You know, the fact it's always the same truck. <laughs> you know, well, there's, there's that. But like after the, the like fiftieth guy, you you have to be like, we're revoking your truck license, right? Right. Yeah, that's true. And what? not even the fiftieth. You have to do it after the, the like fifth, right? That's true, but if you have God backing you, because remember they're not normal—at least in the comic versions—they're not normal truck drivers, right? They're they're working for God. So when you've God backing yeah. you, you can get out, get away with a lot. Yeah, may- or a God backing you, as the case may, may- be. Maybe because there there seems to be a lot of one, and it's weird that you guys are right. It's always a truck, and we not always, but, but often there's so many. And then the mm. weird thing is, after the truck flattens our hero. We very seldom find out what happened on Earth after that. So it it could very well be that, yeah, it's just every isekai story all takes place in the same continuity because it's actually a murder mystery about who's driving this damn truck and killing off all, like, the the teenagers of Japan. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, no, you're right. 
I don't know. That, that, that just seems to be the way it is. I guess, you know what I equate Isekai to in a lot of ways? It, it, is, it is just a hack to write to get into fantasy stories quickly. But in a lot of ways, it's very similar to uh, romance novels. Like, which you you may or may not know, Jimmy, romance is actually the number one genre on Earth. Yeah. Like, it is yeah. the biggest selling genre there is. There is nothing bigger than romance. Um, and so, but the thing is, they're all the exact same plot. Every single <laughs> damn one of them, they're the exact same story. Yeah. All, all 10,000 that they get, they get written per year. And that's probably a low number. They're all the exact same. There are some slight variations about whether you're writing like Beauty and the Beast or, oh, what's the other Ur type? Beauty and the Beast is one of them where that's the dominant male who's you know, tamed by the wild male who's tamed by the the girl. Um, there's another another archetype. Like oh, I'm forgetting it oh, now. But it, there's the chick. What? Flick. There's the chick. Yeah, there's the, where yeah. You, you meet Mister Right at the beginning, but you hate him, mm-hmm. and right after you Mister Wrong, and at the 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 third act twist is that when you realize it. Mr. Wright, who you originally hated, is going to be stuck in a horrible, horrible relationship forever that you come in and break up and then live happily ever after until the sequel. Yep, yep. That's basically the other version. I would like to share a little piece of publisher knowledge with you guys. Okay, Uh please do. So, uh, we were actually looking at this when we we wanted to publish uh, that first romance novel from Moon Quill. Mm -hmm. Apparently, so you can assign tags to your book on Amazon which mm-hmm. will allow them to be searched under under those tags. Mm-hmm. If you type in millionaire romance, the top, let's say, 100 or so books make... I, I'm giving fake numbers here, but in comparison, they will be accurate. Mm-hmm. Let's say the top 100 or so romance novels that have the tag millionaire romance, mm-hmm. the top 100 average monthly income of maybe $5,000. Right. If you type in... Billionaire romance, the top hundred or so novels average about fifty thousand dollars per month. <laughs> so yep. it's incredible what a single letter does. <laughs> oh, wow! Wow! <laughs> Any idea why? So if if you're writing romance out there and you have the millionaire romance tag for your book, change it to billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, ladies. Hot tip. Or, and gentlemen, there are some gentlemen who write romance too under uh, usually pseudonyms, but they but they yes. some guys are writing romance too. So, no, it's does does that work like an action story where if my actioner has a giant handgun, he's not as cool as the guy that carries the giant machine gun? I mean, yeah, <laughs> I guess right. Like, why would you want to uh, you know have a romantic relationship with a millionaire when you could have one with a billionaire, right? <laughs> I mean, yep. Oh, oh. That's so weird. Seems easy to me there. <laughs> well, I think it's a time period thing, though. Remember, to us, billionaires are the big players. But if mm. we go back to Don and my generation, when you know we were your age or a bit younger, millionaires were. Mm, like yeah. it would, you know, thirty years ago, forty years ago, it would have been millionaires because you know inflation, basically. But now <laughs> it's billionaires, and, and then in probably twenty, thirty years, it'll be trillionaires. Oh God. What? Maybe maybe Mukul can get early on the train there. There we go. Yeah, man. Romance trillionaire stories. Yep. <laughs> All right. So we need isekai romance trillionaire <laughs> lit RPG stories. Yep. If so, any authors want to get started in that, let me know. So what would that be? So you would go to another world and you would start a business, I guess, and become a trillionaire. 
No, wait, because the isekai, because the romance means it usually has to be from the female point of view, and she has to hook up with the trillionaire. So I guess she would start your own bit. She would start her own business, and then using a point system based on video game knowledge, mm-hmm. and then what? Uh, what would happen? And then eventually she'd meet this. Oh yeah, rival trillionaire or rival trillionaire who'd be her competition, but eventually they'd fall in love. Yeah, there we go. Yep, there we go. We got it. There, That's there's a big story. There's another way. Okay. That the main character, mm-hmm. she's she's a like a, a mid level accountant. She's in her mid forties. Doesn't have time to date. Very work oriented. No kids. Feeling lonely. Gets run over by a truck on the way home for some reason. Mm-hmm. Ends up as an eighteen year old young girl in this medieval society where there's one king that essentially rules the entire planet, but what's been happening is his underlings have been undermining his control because he doesn't have the necessary math or accounting skills to keep track of what they're doing. And she ends up as a servant and accidentally discovers one of these guys and starts working her way up the ranks using her massive accounting knowledge in order to knock off all of the rivals to make her way up to the king in order to win his favor because she's secretly in love with him but doesn't know that he is with her but doesn't feel he can say anything because she's technically a commoner still. That would actually probably sell really well. Yeah, that would um, t- Don, you are, one, you are one step away from actually making a large amount of money at this point. A bit of an anecdote from my mm-hmm. life. My sister, who is 11 years older than me, mm-hmm. is also a lot more successful than me. Mm-hmm. Um, so when she was, I guess, my age now, she had an assistant who I believe was about 45 years old mm-hmm. who loved romance novels and, mm-hmm. you know, assistant kind of personal accountant, etc. all of that. So mm-hmm. as soon as you said accountant numbers, all of that 40, you know, middle-aged turns into an 18 year old. <laughs> I was like, we already have your audience. We know it exists. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yep, there you go. There's there's the formula right there. I mean, the only thing I have to say is you didn't work in the lit RPG part. So that I'm disappointed with. But the rest of that was spectacular, Don. Well, does the lit RPG thing appeal more to males or females? Because if you're selling it to females, then you, you might not. So want good point. It, it would be males. Yes. I also to want to say the lit RPG market is fairly saturated now. <laughs> if it was My a bad. year or two or three years ago, you could write basically any lit RPG, and it would be incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. However, nowadays, it's a little harder because everyone who wants to make a quick penny, and uh, as well as you know, people who are actually fans of lit RPG and like, the, like how the game systems work and all of that, mm-hmm. there's just a lot of people writing lit RPGs now, mm-hmm. and the audience is growing, but not at the same rate. Yes. If there was one author for every, I don't know, 1,000 or 10,000 readers three years ago, there's probably one author to 100 now. It's, yeah. It's gotten it. a lot more competitive in that space. Yep. Well, mm-hmm. that happens with any uh, space that gets gets hot, right? That gets popular. Yeah. Uh, there's a gold rush mentality on Kindle, so everyone just rushes into wherever it is. I, in fact, actually, I have a strong suspicion that original light novels, original English light novels, is probably one of those next spaces if it's not already happening. Oh, yeah, it's happening. Um, Mikhail Werbrick actually mm-hmm. 
we actually launched one of the initial salvos into it. We obviously were not one of the first original English light novels, mm-hmm. but Mike's marketing plan was so incredibly effective that basically anyone who knows what we did to market the book is copying what we did. Mm. <laughs> so it's incredible to see just how many people are just picking these things up so quickly and how competitive it is because back in 2015 when i first started on amazon it was incredibly easy to make money from publishing on amazon Mm -hmm. you could reasonably put an unedited book with a fairly shoddy ten dollar cover with no advertising and no marketing and expect to make 200 to $300 in your first month. Hmm. However, hmm. if you in do that genres, now, anyway. yeah. I, I would say in most genres, you could reasonably expect that back in 2015, 2016. Nowadays, if you run in there without a solid marketing plan, you better have a solid fan base. Because if you don't have fans to push your sales ranking up and get mm-hmm. it visible, you're not going to make any money. Right. Unless you're really, really lucky. There's there's always outliers. Right. Oh, yeah. No, that That's a question, though. Do you find that... Do fans develop intense loyalty? Or because of, do you find that because of the, the, the amount of material available now, they tend to kind of stick with something for a bit and then move on to something different? That's actually something that we're looking into, <laughs> mm. funnily enough. Um, but as far as I know... Readers tend to care about the authors. Mm-hmm. They will read, they will basically go, I like this author. I am going to read everything this author writes. Mm-hmm. Of course, those are the more hardcore readers. But generally speaking, Amazon does a good job in where if a reader bought and read your first book to a moderate degree, it will recommend your book, your next book to them when it is published. So Amazon does a really good job with their algorithm in determining what to recommend and all of that. So as long as as long as someone liked your book enough to read it through, they will see your next book. And mm-hmm. to that end, I think we're getting a lot of author attribution and not publisher attribution or genre attribution. Obviously, you know, if you like content of a certain genre, you are more likely to look into that genre. But mm-hmm. because of how the um, Amazon algorithm works, I think it kind of clumps authors together. Mm-hmm. Because I will often see, for example, Elo Lord of Goblins or Half What Half or A Bard's Tale, our other series. Most of the recommended books, when you go to their store page, are from the same 10 to 15 authors. Right. Hmm. So I believe it clumps in some way by authors. So to that end, it's very important um, who you're clumped with author-wise. Right. And yeah. readers will be naturally more loyal author-wise because of Amazon. It no. makes sense. The The algorithm basically is saying, well, you like this. These are what other pe- similar people are buying. So we'll give you that too. And so we'll give you these other authors too. Do do authors market themselves? Because I'm thinking like a lot of the uh, the online like light novels and that that I know of, 
there seems to be very little actual press put on the authors, but if that's what people are looking for, you'd think that they would be directly marketing themselves and the material would be secondary. Is, is that happening or, or is, is, did they enjoy their anonymity too much? <laughs> so I think uh, something that a lot of writers enjoy doing is just writing and they don't want to think about all of the other work the mm. marketing and all of that. That's where I was when I first started writing. I was like, mm. I'm just gonna write and people are gonna read my work cause it's good. Mm. Very mm. naive yes, <laughs> of me, naive. Yeah. of old me. Um, so I, I think a lot of authors until they realize that they have to do all of the social media networking and like communicate with their fans and actually put in that non-writing effort, I believe very few of them will, unless they, for some reason, did beforehand. Mm -hmm. For example, Deathblade has almost always kept in touch with his fan base through his Twitter, through his comments mm -hmm. on his translated works, and that really paid dividends when he started writing his own original work. Yeah. I believe Ogre, Ogre's Gate, I might be wrong, Deathblade, please, please don't Yeah, he did Ogre's me. Gate, um, but Ogre's Gate is actually based on a role-playing game. Yeah, that wasn't quite original. He was actually doing it kind of as a story thing to connect with some role playing uh, with some Wuxia role playing game he was involved with. I haven't checked in on Deathblade in a little bit, so I'm not sure if he's writing his own other original stuff yet. He probably he, will be he if is. he isn't already. Yeah, he is. Um, he also wrote like a guideline to like Wuxia and all of that that also sold very well. Oh, okay. Um, it's incredible. I, I will say as a publisher, it is incredibly important for a writer to build their presence on social media and develop mm. a fan base because they are the people who will buy your work when it publishes and push you into those higher sales ranks where you get more visibility and other people will come see you. Right. It's like having subscribers on YouTube, right? Mm. Subscribers don't necessarily mean you will get views, but because they're more likely to get shown your video by YouTube, just based off of, you know, you're, you're subscribed to this channel, we're going to show it on your main page you're more likely to have early views, which will then push your video further. Mm -hmm. It's the same case with books on Amazon or any other plat online platform where there's some kind of algorithm or ranking system. I would say, honestly, developing a fan base is just as important as improving your writing itself. Mm. That if, if what you're going for is sales and money and all of that, if you just want to write a good book, which I absolutely respect, and I'm kind of in that boat myself where I kind of just want to write for me, I've kind of come to terms with um, my ideas and how I want to write what I want to, mm -hmm. and I don't really want to write what's market friendly. If, what, if all you want to do is write and you're just like, I'm just going to put it out there in case anyone wants to enjoy it, it's absolutely fine for you to not go out and do all of the social media marketing and all of that. But if you want to have financial success writing, it's almost imperative. Mm -hmm. No, I can see that. Well, I mean, that's where we are now. We're in an attention economy and you have to have people's attention to be successful with the work mm -hmm. itself can't succeed without you also bringing in people's attention to it in some way. Hmm. So speaking of which, does Moonquill have a mailing list? Do you guys use mailing lists at all? <laughs> we we tried building one a while ago. It it wasn't very successful. 
We are going to be working on a new system to promote and have a mailing list in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, we do not utilize a mailing list for our publishing program. We advertise in other ways. Oh, okay. Okay. I was just wondering, because among author circles on Amazon for, for a very long time, it's always make your own mailing list. That's like considered like the number one thing authors need to do, um, mostly because authors are afraid that uh, Amazon at some point might up and decide to deplatform you for whatever reason, which does happen occasionally. And so that's why you need your own way to direct your fans to where your books are or whatever. Yeah, so I would... I wouldn't say mailing list is number one, but it's definitely one of the top ones. Um, And it's something that we are going to be putting a lot of effort into in the future. Mm. We have a plan for it. It's just not something we can implement right now. Right. So what is, if you can give without, you know, giving away the, you know, your marketing secrets, what is the main marketing channel you guys use to get word out about your, your works, about the books? (laughs) Um, We run ads on certain websites ah, okay. that appeal to the readers we expect to sell best to. And that um, makes total sense. That's You don't have to say any more, that, 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 but that makes total sense that you... Well, I can continue because okay, that's sure. one of the ways. Um, mm-hmm. Another way is we run... Uh, we definitely run ads on Amazon. Everyone should run ads on Amazon. Of course. We have a specific strategy for mm-hmm. Amazon advertising that is very, very cost efficient mm-hmm. and is one of the main reasons why Minquill was able to survive 2020 right. and why Lord of Goblins specifically is the best book the strategy has worked on, right. why Lord of Goblins continues to stay in the ranks with incredible series like One Punch Man in My Hero Academia. If you look at all of the books mm-hmm. uh, that surround Lord of Goblins typically in the rankings, mm-hmm. you're just like, what is Lord of Goblins doing here? Because <laughs> all of the other original English novels that are that high up in the rankings are novels that have just been published and are therefore you know, spearheaded by the Amazon algorithm and by people buying it for the first time because mm-hmm. it just came out. But... Lord of Goblins came out in on June 1st, I believe, or June 4th, 2020. Mm-hmm. It was ranked number five in all light novels on Amazon hmm. in December. Which I should tell our listeners is pretty amazing. And not because Lord of Goblins is not a good book. I'm not saying that. But the Amazon algorithm itself only really supports your book for roughly the first 60 days. And really yep. the only first 30 days. And if your book can't find an audience by then, it's basically allowed to just drop into the black hole abyss and disappear. That's kind of the way Amazon is set up. It's always pushing new content to people. And so you get 30 days at with with a lot of support and a little bit of support for another 30 days, and then it just dies. And so most books make most of their money in the first 60 days that they're going to make. And then maybe if they're lucky, they have a long tail. for So for that book, Lord of Goblins, to actually still be in the high numbers, like in six months later, is almost astounding. Like it just shows it, both the quality of the book astounding. and strategy. To put it into perspective, the four books that were in front of it in November, mm-hmm. all four of them had enemies. Hmm. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Like 
it's a it's a different league, and for us to be there with them, it w- was just incredible. That five is, five yeah. six months down the road, mm-hmm. so we have a very specific Amazon advertising strategy that is, I guess, the backbone of our sales now. Mm. And so that's why, listeners, if you have a light novel or you know novel idea that you want to pitch, you should be talking to Moonquill. And I'll be okay. So. Even and he did if... not pay me to say that, by the way. <laughs> here, here. Ten bucks, yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll, 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 you can pay me later. It's okay. Oh, wait. We're did kidding. I say that on air? Never mind. Shh. No. Um, even if you don't end up publishing with us, we will give you advice. The last mm. four to five people who applied to our publishing program that we said no to we gave a lot of advice to as to what they should do in the future. We even suggested some people that they should find a specific other publisher Mm -hmm. because we felt that their work would be much better represented and worked on there. Hmm. So we're, like I said at the beginning, we're not really in this for the money. We just want to help out the authors. If we feel that we can do a good job with the piece, you know, obviously we'll take it, you know? Mm -hmm, Of course. Nice. Two thumbs up. If we feel that it's not something that we should work on, but we feel that another publisher would do a really good job with it, we'll direct you there. Well, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I the last person I said no to, I even asked, have you applied to this other publisher? They said they did. And I was like, you should probably go with them. They'll probably be better for this. Hmm. That's That's good of you. That's really good of you. Wow, okay. Because what... Oh, I was going to say then, what what kind of stuff is it that you look for when you're looking at stuff to publish? Like, what are you mm-hmm. interested in? Well, it's mostly, we don't really judge by genre or that. We judge by, one, if it's worth the effort for us to work on it. For example, how much time and money are we going to have to spend editing it? Um, is it in the realm of something that our editors understand how to edit, right? Because mm-hmm. our editors understand certain styles that are more or less popular in the general space, but maybe a super unique novel comes up and we're just like, we like it, but we don't feel that any of our editors can really help you on this because it's not in their style. It's not in anything they're familiar with. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also books that would require specific art that we can't provide. We have contacts in certain styles, we know people who are good in about three or four different styles that cover most bases, mm-hmm. but there will always be books that maybe need something a little more specific to that, that we feel it needs in order to sell well. And if we can't provide that, we'll tell the artist we can't provide that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So because if it's not going to sell well we're, and we're putting all of the effort and money into it, that's just the bad move on our part. And then the final one is if we just don't feel that we would do a good job marketing it, there are certain books that we do a better job marketing. Hmm. Um, Also, certain writing styles and certain topics are better for us to market. Such as? I'm not saying, well, you know, (laughs) uh, for example, more generic fantasy. Right. But we're comfortable with a lot of things. But sometimes we look at a piece and we're just like, I don't know how we would approach this. Mm. And for stuff like that, we would say, no, we can't. 
So but, if someone came to you, for example, with a good dinosaur porn novel, you wouldn't be up for that then. <laughs> Sorry. Depending on how the writing is and how graphic they want the cover to be, we could say yes or no. Huh. Woo! <laughs> All right, Don, we're set. <laughs> it always it always works. I think like eighty percent of the show somehow end up getting around to dinosaur porn somehow. Whenever we're just discussing publishing, it's a running gag on the show that dinosaur porn comes up. <laughs> I, um, I think sorry it, to ambush you like that. I feel a little bit sad it. that I wasn't warned of this. <laughs> no, um, I, I do want to say I just said a lot of reasons why we wouldn't accept right. accept stuff, mm-hmm. but I will say that as long as the writing quality is decent enough. We are willing to accept most things. Obviously, we won't accept stuff that's illegal. Mm-hmm. For example, looks into private people's lives or calls to terrorism or stuff like that. Obviously, right. we're not going to accept that. <laughs> but yeah. most normal things of decent writing quality that is more or less manageable by us in terms of the services that we can provide, as long as we feel it's within our realm and our realm is fairly wide, despite the caveats I gave beforehand, mm-hmm. we will take it. We will make an offer. Okay. Now, do, do you prefer to work with stuff that, say, more would be, like, say, G-rated or PG-rated rather than, like, say, R-rated, or do you not really worry so much about that? So I think definitely G, PG, PG-13 is definitely our sweet spot with our current reader base that supports Moonquill. Mm-hmm. I would be open to R-rated stuff, but it would be a little more complicated. For example, we can't have um, 18 plus stuff on the site. You can have you can have descriptions of nudity, but you can't have, you know, um, basically pornographic stuff on the mm-hmm. site because we're not legally allowed to have that stuff on the site. We're not licensed for it. A lot of authors actually have said a lot of bad things about us <laughs> because there's like i can't believe they're such prudes they won't allow 18 plus stuff on the site i'm just like we're just not legally allowed <laughs> like yeah, please yeah. understand and there's like well we're not going to understand i'm just like all right you know fine it's not worth it <laughs> right well wait a sec why aren't you allowed to have legally have 18 plus stuff on your site it's your own private site you should be able to have whatever you want on it so i believe 18 plus stuff has to be be under some kind of warning system. It also has to be in the terms of service. Basically, uh, our lawyer asked us about it. We said we probably won't be focusing on 18 plus stuff on a website. Mm -hmm. They said, okay, let us know if you do. We'll make adjustments. We'll have to get some stuff sorted for you to be able to do that. Right. Um, I'm not aware of the specifics. I'm not a lawyer, but that is what we were told. That is what we were advised. And we just haven't had enough reason to go through the trouble Mm-hmm. of getting all of the licenses and stuff to do it. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. Um, actually, speaking of law stuff, I want to ask you about this. So, in a general sense, okay, and I'm not, because I'm not asking for anything specific here, but what kind of terms do you offer authors, like, that makes you competitive against <laughs> some other publisher? Like, for example, a web novel, for example, or something like that. Like what makes you better to publish with than one of them? First of all, the amount of work we put into every book we publish nowadays mm-hmm. is incredible. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> okay, we, I, I, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure arguing. We We've established that, but I mean, yeah. in terms of actual terms here, like, are you so, offering a, a better deal? Because I mean, okay, yes, web okay. novel is offering terrible deals, so we're, okay, we won't worry about <laughs> them. You, if if you're curious about that, there's a whole a Moonquill podcast episode about about why <laughs> web novels terms are horrible. Um, Thanks for the shout out. Yeah, um, and which we. Uh, by the way, there's a Moonquill podcast, folks. You should definitely go and check it out if you get the chance. Um, oh, there'll be a link in the show notes if you uh, don't want to. You could just Google it. But um, compare. But if I were say an, a new author and I were to go on Amazon, I can get like seventy percent royalties. You know, just by self publishing it. I you know, I spend a little. I go on Fiverr. I whip together a cover. I uh, maybe even get someone to you know, basic edit my work on Fiverr. You know, maybe put two hundred dollars into the book <laughs> or something like that, and I get seventy percent royalties. I'm not. Cha- I I'm not playing you down or anything like that. But what do you offer that that, no, that you know that beats that basically? That's absolutely fair, and that's what a lot of authors try for the first time. Mm-hmm. I would heavily dissuade against this. I don't care if you come to Moonquill. Well, okay, I would like for you to come to Moonquill, well, okay. but don't fair try enough. this because this is just a waste of money if mm-hmm. you're going to Fiverr for all of your stuff. Right. Um. But unfortunately, it's what a lot of people do. Which is what a lot first of people off, do. That's why Fiverr's the, there. Mm. Yep. <laughs> first off, the quality of work that we do is miles beyond what Fiverr can provide. I would even argue that the quality of what the services we provide are beyond most indie publishers. Mm-hmm. And I would say are solidly in the average to higher than average range of a small press publisher. Mm-hmm. That is for our best stuff. Obviously, certain genres were a little weaker in, for example, romance, because we don't have as much much experience there. Right. But if we're talking about fantasy, action, that kind of stuff, I can solidly say our quality, pretty high up there. Mm-hmm. Our rates are incredible. We charge, the way our publishing contract works is extremely flexible. Mm-hmm. The way it works is we charge a flat 10%. So it's all royalty based and right. we share the revenue. We share revenue with the author, mm-hmm. we charge 10% of the revenue flat for publishing. And for that, we do all of our little tricks on Amazon. We'll, you know, shout out when your book is published. We'll handle all of the tags. We'll handle all of the categories. We'll, we'll basically do everything mm-hmm. that your book needs to get published. The base level, right? And then for another X percent, I'm going to say X because it depends on the amount of work that's needed. Um, we offer editing services mm-hmm. and I'm very proud of our editing services. We've had some trouble in the past with sourcing good editors and the editing process itself. We now run, I guess I can get into specifics on this sort of, we now run a two editor system where we have a junior editor who goes in and makes the initial changes. And then we have a senior editor who goes in and checks all of the changes and it does another run through of their own. Mm-hmm. And all the while the author has full access to the editing document so that at any time, if they're uncomfortable with with any of the changes that are being made, they can let us know. Mm-hmm. We have perhaps the most open process. We communicate with the author on a daily, weekly basis. Everything we do, they know. It's their baby, you know? Right. Gotta yeah. let them know. And then art, uh, artwork, right? We have our artwork contacts. You know one of them, Lan. Mm-hmm. 
He's for more anime-based artwork. We also have contacts for other styles of artwork, like painting, mm -hmm. etc. We charge usually 10 to 20% for artwork. I can't give a rate for editing because right. it really varies heavily. But artwork generally ranges from 10 to 20%. Mm -hmm. If you want extra images inside the book, maybe we charge a little more. And then marketing is a flat 10%. The great part, the great thing about the Moonquill publishing program and its flexibility mm -hmm. is if you want to bring in your own editor and you're just like, trust me, it'll be fine. As long as we're happy with your editor's quality of work, we'll say, all right, you don't need to do editing with us. We'll cross that out. Mm -hmm. We won't take royalties from you for that. If you bring your own artwork to the table, which is what um, Mikhail Warbrick Mm -hmm. And Haiti Bendakji and also Jay Powell have done. They've sourced their own ar artists right. and made their own artwork. We say, all right, we're not going to take that. You don't even have to do marketing with us. We strongly advise you do mm. <laughs> because it's a lot more efficient for us to do some level of marketing as the publisher itself. Right. We don't require it. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, if we don't have to do any work other than publish the book and manage it over the years to come, you could be looking at a 90% contract, right? Mm. Most that, of our contracts. That's, wait, so that's 90% of the 70% that uh, that Amazon gives its authors. Yes. Yeah, just, I just, just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, okay. Yes, we, we do have to give Amazon their cut. <laughs> yes, Amazon demands their pound of flesh, yes. Yes. Um, but that's a 90%, 10% um, contract between us and the between the author and us. And oh, then that's incredibly good terms. Most by the of way. our, mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Uh, most publishing contracts are 15% to the author. Yeah. Five 90% to the company. Yep. No, no. I, so how long is the contract for? Like if someone were to publish with you, is this like 10, 15 year, seven year? How long do your contracts usually run? So our contracts are perpetual. Okay. So basically forever. When you pass on, we will keep paying your family, assuming okay. we get their bank information. They should mm -hmm. contact us. If, <laughs> if any of our authors are out there and you're a little worried that we will stop paying your family, okay. let us know. We'll pay your family. Right. Um, but we do. We are willing to negotiate. We're, we're trying to be as flexible as possible. Mm -hmm. So we are willing to negotiate for one year, five year, 10 year, et cetera, time mm -hmm. periods. But that will affect the percent we take. Right. Because it will impact our income. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, quick, quick question. So how about copyright purposes? Like, for example, if someone publishes with you, who owns the copyright of those characters in that story? I'm glad you asked because I was actually just about to get to this. Oh, awesome. The author keeps their copyright, mm, which is better. extremely rare among yes. publishers. Yeah. We actually had to do some legal finagling to make it so that we were still legally a publisher and not a distributor. Hmm. Because mm -hmm. usually you need the copyright to be the publisher. Right. But our lawyers were like, this is nice. I appreciate what you're doing for the authors. However, this kind of <laughs> makes you a distributor. So we had to do some legal finagling. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all good and valid now. We're a publisher. We are not mm -hmm. a distributor. But the author gets to keep their copyright. Right. In cases where there's duo authors, for example, 
example, Mike and Haiti, again, mm-hmm. sorry to keep mentioning them, but yes. they are one of our main author groups. Yep. <laughs> they Please. couldn't share the copyright, really, at least not easily. So they said, Mooncall, you mm-hmm. we'll just give you the copyright. And we said, yes, sir. <laughs> so we've registered the copyright for that book under Moonquill. We right. also do copyright um, registering for the authors if they want that. Mm-hmm. Pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah that some is people rare. some people have told me that they don't believe in Moonquill because our terms are too good. And I'm just <laughs> like, uh, shall we make them worse? I don't know what you're saying here. <laughs> okay, everything in the contract, but once a week we punch you in the kidneys. <laughs> Well, you know, there's a, a fine book by a guy named Robert Cialdini, uh, who's one of the foremost experts on persuasion psychology. And in the book, he tells a story, actually. The book's called Influence. I highly recommend people read it if they get the chance. Um, and in the book, he tells a story about one day he was uh, passing by this local knickknack shop in his neighborhood. And he noticed that this woman had a whole bunch of these like seashell art sculptures and that out front and they all had like you know slash down prices and uh they all basically said like you know like five bucks ten bucks or whatever and he and 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 he he looked at it and said oh do these sell fairly well and she said i can't get rid of them they won't sell <laughs> and uh and he's like oh okay can i make a suggestion and she, she's like yeah sure okay well what and he says yeah charge a lot for them don't sell them for five sell them for like a hundred Sell them for sell them for a lot more. Double, triple your prices, whatever. Make them much more expensive, and just do that for a week or two and see how that goes. Okay. So a couple of weeks later, he drops by. They're all gone, and there are new there are new sculptures there that are several times the price, like that are way super expensive. And she comes up and she thanks him and she says, "You know, as soon as I made the, the these things super expensive, people couldn't buy them fast enough." <laughs> Because the truth is there's something about where people have to feel that there's value there before they don't want junk. They want something that's value. So, and this ties in by my suggestion is you might actually have to make your terms worse. <laughs> really? I'm, yeah, I'm actually serious about that. Human psychology. You might have to make uh, your terms worse because people don't believe that, yeah, you're too good to be true. So therefore you have to make yourself too bad to be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's something that we've unfortunately had to talk about because there's so many people saying it. We're just like, like, do we actually have to make our terms worse so people believe us? Like, what's going on? <laughs> but uh, in the end, we decided we wouldn't. Uh, we did adjust the publishing percentage from 5 to 10%, but that was mm-hmm. because it just wasn't economically feasible. Right. If someone was just publishing us for 5% with the work that is involved, so we raised that to 10%. We did make it worse. Okay, guys? <laughs> yep. We're doing what we can. <laughs> what, what you might consider doing is uh, staging it. And by which I mean, I'm saying this live on the podcast. So everyone can hear this. So if he does it, you'll know. <laughs> um, but, you might, but you might consider something like this where your new author contracts have slightly unfavorable, you know, like maybe 20% or 50 or, you know, whatever, 50%, you, you 50, 50 or at most or something like that, basically less favorable terms. But then you're like, well, but if you publish with us and succeed later books will have, you know, better terms and people, and they would be more likely probably to accept that. I mean, cause I know that's actually a common thing I've heard within the real 
quote unquote, re- I don't mean you're not real publishers, but I'm talking about, you know, big five type level publishers and such. Um, they do that kind of thing and they have for years. Now, that's basically them being ruthless business people screwing people over. But it's it's a weird thing where I know for a fact that they have, quote unquote, experienced author contracts and they have new author contracts and they are not the same terms at all. They're very yeah. different from each other. Um, and so that's um, something I don't remember what the name of the author was, where he tells the story about they sent him a he was he was an experienced author, but he sent this to a to one of the, another publisher that he didn't usually work with, and he looked at the contract and he he um, sent it back to them, which is simply a post-it note that said you've you've mistakenly sent me the new author contract, send me the real author contract for experienced writers, and they did. Because he was sharp enough to realize that this was the we're going to screw you six ways from Sunday contract. <laughs> and so instead they sent him the one with reasonable terms. So like I said, we have thought about it. We ended up deciding that we were just going to keep the terms as is. Because for one thing, if people mm-hmm. aren't willing to go on the slight limb to at least ask about how things work and look at the contract and read it through, mm. then... I don't know if they're the type of people that we want, well, <laughs> that we want to work with because right. they're not, uh, how to say this kindly, they're not meticulous, I guess, at all. Right. They're so, not dedicated professional authors. They're just kind of yes. like playing around. Yeah. So if someone at least is willing to give it a shot to at least try and see if our contract is as good as we say, you know, it's something that we send out pretty easily. If an author asks for it, we'll most likely say yes. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's very little to do to just verify it for yourself. Mm-hmm. And it it's all written fairly cleanly in the, doc, in the contract document. It's written in a way that even I, who am legally challenged, right. legalese challenged, can read it. Um, Good. You know, I'm pretty sure anyone can. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's just a bit of effort. Right. Okay. And I think that's good policy, actually. I do support what you're doing. I do, I'm do. i just making suggestions there to get around that whole, um, yeah. Oh, re- I appreciate thing. it. Yeah. We've, de- we've definitely thought about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet you have. I bet you have. Sorry, Don, you were going to say? I was just going to say, the, the way the internet works, it seems like, once you really, really take off, you can just turn evil then. That's what everybody else does. God. <laughs> so um, mm-hmm. to that point, Google it's something approach. that I've worried sometimes about. The thing I like to say to myself is for a while, actually, um, when I was writing, I was very stressed out. I had a very stressed out, um, stressful main job. And then I was you know, putting my heart into writing after work, so I had mm-hmm. very little time to relax and just breathe. So I will say it personally, I was a little bit of an a-hole. Mm-hmm. Um, huge a-hole. <laughs> <laughs> so, but after getting control of my life and making Moonquill, and I'm in a position as a CEO where I have to be cognizant of what I do when, especially because I represent Moonquill, and if I'm just out there being a raging a hole, mm-hmm. people will not respect Moonquill. True. And I really want Moonquill to succeed. And over time, I've trained myself to just be a lot more level headed, to be a lot nicer. So my thought process is you can trust me because I've already been the a hole. 
<laughs> I know what it's like to be there, and I will not go there. <laughs> right. That's great that you already thought through the evil part of the business. Like, right. I I will say there have been days where, I'll admit it, okay, there's been days where I'm just like, man, we should probably just make the contract worse. Like, we'll just make more money, you know? We'll probably, you know, be a functioning, like, 500 books published publisher faster if we just do this and we pull out like all of the scummy tricks of like messaging all of the authors on a different platform if they want to work with us mm -hmm. but you know at the end of the day we have made the cognizant decisions to not do any of those underhanded tactics we don't go to other people's platforms and message all of the authors if they be willing to work for us we ask our authors if they have author friends that who they think would be interested but that's basically the extent. We're also thinking of running a kind of bounty system in the future where if you like have a friend who's writing, you can refer them to us. And if we sign them on as a author, then we'll give you like a small finder's fee. Mm -hmm. We're also thinking mm -hmm. of actually improving our contract again, <laughs> where <laughs> we're going to give like a signing bonus or advances because some people are a little skeptic even though it's their book, if they'll be able to earn money. Mm -hmm. So as a small press, most small presses give a $500 or less advance against royalties. Mm -hmm. We were thinking maybe we'll start giving an advance. It's something we're going to look into in the future. Maybe we'll give advances above what small presses usually do. Hmm. I don't know if we'll do it because apparently the contract's did good already, but <laughs> we're, we're, it's something that we're looking into that we might do in the future as our financial situation continues to improve. Mm -hmm. And we've already thought about potentially doing all of the scumbag things that a lot of other publishers do. And we have decided every single time to not do them. Hmm. And I think that gives us a little bit of credibility that we're not going to do them in the future mm -hmm. because we already have precedent that we're not, that we've decided that we're not going to do them. So, Going back to your the company that that's fa that's fantastic. But do you have like a publishing plan or schedule? Like, is there there a certain number of books you'd like to say? Would you like to basically be doubling the number of books you're publishing each year? What do you have any goals like that? <laughs> so, <laughs> so okay, sorry, I, I just had to laugh because you said doubling, and I was actually thinking we were going to decrease the amount of books we sell huh. we publish this year. Uh, so our publishing program in its first year, we did one book per month. It mm -hmm. was my goal to do one book per month, 12 Reasonable. months, 12 mm -hmm. books. We did 12 books. We were right on schedule. The problem is I, f I didn't feel that we were able to give every single book the, the attention that it needed to truly succeed and be a top seller, such as Lord of Goblins, mm -hmm. or even Halfwit Halfling, which has had a few number ones in its day. Um, and we were able to give those books a lot of attention because we had a we had open scheduling around them, but then we also had other books where we were a little more rushed, we weren't able to give them the attention needed, and that, that was our fault. It's something mm -hmm. that we did, we did poorly, and we're going to improve in the future. I was actually thinking we might do a maximum of eight books in 2021. Okay. So that would be a 25% decrease. 
We obviously are also focusing on other stuff. I mentioned audiobooks and webtoons earlier in this uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. So we're also branching out into those areas. And I just don't think we would, in 2021, be able to handle properly more than eight books. Mm -hmm. I do think that it is something that we will need to work on in the future in terms of quantity. Mm-hmm. But we are improving over time our process. And right. I believe once the process is more or less set, which I believe it is beginning to get to that point where we're confident in our process and there's only little changes to be made, not mm-hmm. huge, overwhelming procedural changes, I think we can scale our process up because it is efficient yet simple. And it's something that mirrors what a lot of development companies actually do, especially with the partner editing, because that's actually what a lot of dev companies do with their coders, right? They have a junior coder and then they have the senior, well, junior engineer. (laughs) They're usually called a senior engineer or they do partner coding where basically they have someone looking over their shoulders seeing if the code's correct. Right. Makes sense. That's a good plan. I mean, but obviously for the company to grow and succeed, you will have to start increasing the number of books. But again, I, yes. I guess it's depend just depend on how many good authors come your way. If you get more good authors, obviously you'll need to find ways to get them all out, right? Yep. Um, so I'm confident that over time we will definitely be able to scale. I just don't think 2021 is the year for us to make those the changes needed for us to scale. Mm -hmm. I have a pretty good idea of what we need to do to scale. We basically, uh, I don't want to get too into it. (laughs) I don't want people to steal our secrets. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. You better um, not in a public, public podcast. Yeah. But I believe we have a scalable process Mm -hmm. and that it will not be an issue for us. Once we decide that we're at a point where we should start improve, increasing our quantity of books. Right. Makes hmm. sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, ho- I hope it works out that way. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Fingers crossed, right? <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed. Exactly. Well, I want to see Moon Quill succeed. Um, any other questions, Don? No, that covers actually because you, you've answered uh, uh, a whole lot. Like I say, um, it's interesting that the technique that you're using as opposed to what I've seen from a lot of publishers, both online and in 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 traditional, uh, traditional. Yeah, I couldn't think. I was thinking material. That you've got a long term plan, and what it looks like you're doing is you're cultivating the talent rather than just using them up, like a lot, especially the bigger places seem to be focused on. Mm-hmm. So, I believe it's that that's a difference of just mindset. I've experienced a workplace where we were basically just used up and then, you know, people quit. I believe at my second job, the one where I was really stressful and I was an (laughs) a-hole, I believe we had a team of about 40 and we had 50% turnover in the six months I was there, Hmm. which is frankly Hmm. insane. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I really like the people we have on Mooncool right now. They've stuck with us for two years already, a little over two years. And I think we have a really good team that we can 
rely on in the future. Mm -hmm. They've sacrificed a lot for the company. I'm not going to just use them and throw them aside. Mm. And I really think that, especially for a small business, the people are what make it succeed. We can have all of the great books that come in and contracts and great contracts and whatever. But if we don't have the people and the talent to make those books succeed, we're, we're just screwed. Yeah. Like mm. it's not even a, I would like to be greedy and, you know, hire some lesser talented people or just, you know, drive them, work them to the bone. It's just, we kind of have to be cognizant of how much we're working the people at Moonquill mm -hmm. in order to succeed. Right. Well, yes, I imagine you do. Um, otherwise, they're going to get burnt out and leave, as you said. Yeah, and then I can't run Moonquill by myself. <laughs> so, you know. Right. But they're all great people. They've sacrificed a lot of, for the company, and they're very smart people. Mm -hmm. um, they're very good at what they do. I think we have some really talented people who are overlooked by other businesses. Mm -hmm. For example, our publishing um, head does not have a college degree. So she is overlooked by a lot of companies because of that simple fact. But I can tell you right now, I went to a fairly decent college. You know, she's a lot smarter than I am, especially right. when it comes to publishing. There is no competition there. If she vetoes me, I will listen to her because I know she's, she's no, she knows what she's talking about more than I do. And I'm okay with that. And that's what makes you a good boss. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I want to give an anecdote. Mm -hmm. When Lord of Goblins came in, the book, the series that saved Moonquill, <laughs> mm -hmm. I didn't want to take it. <laughs> okay? Oh, wow. I, I, I looked at it. I was like, man, this is going to be so much work. I don't think it's worth it. It was her who was like, listen to me. Take a chance on this. It will be worth it. I listened to her, and now we're reaping the benefits. Okay? <laughs> listen to the people work with you and trust them huh. that was literally the only way Moonquill has survived until now mm, that's fantastic so i think we could probably end it there uh was there anything else you want to talk about jimmy i'm good i thank you for having me on the podcast it's been wonderful to talk to you guys um i feel that i may have shilled my company a little too much <laughs> but i hope your listeners do not mind too much <laughs> Well, no, actually, I think it's been very informative. I think we've covered a lot of different angles and different topics about Moonquill. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a rare look inside a you know, small press publisher in the current market. As you said, there are many, many small press publishers out there, uh, some of which, more than a few, which are kind of scummy. And then there are some that are better. <laughs> and it's, we, it's hard to judge, really, because for your average author, they don't really know what what what's good and what's bad like they don't they and you often by the time they discover it's too late right and you yeah. kind of pull back a bit of the curtain for our audience and let them see what it is what it does look like and what it takes to be a successful hopefully small press publisher um and to work in this environment and hopefully if any of them really are thinking of publishing um by the way i'm not in the recruiting department of Mooncope. i just <laughs> want to make that clear i think but if anything anyone are thinking of publishing something that's up your alley they probably should check you out if 
they'll publish with you, they don't publish with you. That's that's up between you and them. But there are a lot of options out there and not all of them are trustworthy. I just want to yep. say that. Yeah. Like I said earlier in the program, if if you send us your manuscript, even if uh, Moonquill is unable to ag agree on a contract with you, agree on terms, I'm willing to give advice. We're willing to help you reach the next step. Even if you end up going with another publisher or self-publishing, we'll give you tips. Hmm. We'll give, we won't give you the super secret ones, but we will give you tips, point you in the right direction, try and help you succeed. And that's really good of you. That's really good of you. So, yeah. so thank you so much, Jimmy, for coming on and yeah. kind of pulling back the curtain and letting us see some of the the sausage making that goes on behind <laughs> the scenes in Moonquill. I'm sure we probably nauseated a few listeners, but you know this is the way it works, guys. And it's and you have to know uh, you have to know that the publishing is not easy. So don't just don't jump into it lightly. Yeah, read yeah. the contracts. Yes, and also most authors make, I believe, less than $5,000 a year. Yes. So don't have writing as your A plan. <laughs> have something else set up, another job, an office job, or whatever you work in, and then have writing as your side thing. And if your side thing, and if your writing takes off, then maybe ease off the pedal slowly. Don't jump into it. I jumped into it. I had a rough few years. Um, I've recovered, obviously, now. Mm. But it's it's a thing where you have to be very careful. It's like any other type of content creation mm -hmm. where your success could dry up in a matter of weeks, months, etc. One algorithm change on you Amazon and you're done. One change yeah. in the market, you're done. Yeah. That's the sad truth of being an Amazon publisher. I, I basically tell all writers the same thing is... No, it's your B job. It's not your A job. Don't make it your A job because it's just not steady and reliable. Yeah. Unless you're I will say um, we do mostly publish exclusively on Amazon for now, but we're looking into other avenues as we grow. So, Well, Amazon is like 80 plus percent of the publishing market online. So, <laughs> it, it, yeah. I mean, that's, that's where the money is, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is... A fair number of people in that small percent that's left, but reaching them is more difficult than Amazon. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so thank you very much for coming on, Jimmy. Um, thank you, Don, for, for co-hosting. And thank you, listener. And if you have any questions or comments, please drop by obeythedna.com and leave questions, comments, whatever, um, and check out our show notes, which will also include links to Moonquill and, of course, the Moonquill podcast, which you should also check out as well. Mm -hmm. Good night, everyone. Bye. And always Bye. remember, watch out for gazillionaire kingdom romance coming to a Kindle near you. <laughs> no. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at obeythedna.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember... That to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya!